Good morning, Veritas. How are we doing today? Doing good? Awesome. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Jordan Howell. I'm on staff in Cedar Rapids as our college ministry director. And if you don't know anything about our college ministry, uh, one thing that we do each year, uh, actually each semester, is we have applications and interviews for student leaders. So we are actually a primarily student-led ministry. And one way that you can be praying for us in these next two weeks, we have student leader interviews. So it's this process of students who are saying, I want to be bought into the Great Commission on my campus in our city. They're going to be sitting down with our staff and really processing what does it look like to be bought in to the Great Commission. I would appreciate your prayers for that. And also, we send summer trips every summer. Students get the opportunity to go overseas for eight weeks to share the gospel in nations that are unreached. So this last year we sent a team to Thailand, and this year we're hoping to send another team to the other side of the world. So that's another way you can be praying for us as a college ministry in Cedar Rapids. And if you're, you know, really inclined to pray for me personally, as a parent, I would appreciate your prayers on potty training, all right? That's where me and my wife currently are at in life. We have two two two-year-olds, and Boy number three on the way in January. So now is the time to figure out how do we cut diaper costs, right? We've started potty training these two, and there's this method that we've learned called the bare bottom method. Anybody heard of that? Yeah. So you get the idea. Naked below the waist every time we're at home. And I got to say, it puts your trust to the test a little bit. It's like, okay, we're sitting on the sectional. Can I trust you? You're in the other room alone. Can I trust you? You say you don't have to go. Can I trust you? You say you do have to go. Can I trust you? It's just a constant game of trying to figure out what's actually going to happen with these kids. And I'd love to say that my instinct is to trust, like lean in all the time and just, I always trust. But that's just not the case. You know what it's like, right? You want to believe the best in people, but trusting can be hard. Because the reality is, all of us, even if you believe the best in other people, you've had your trust broken. And sometimes it's light, something like, you know, it was just Halloween and you had somebody jump out and scare you. And it's like, oh man, now I have to be careful every time I walk around a corner because who's going to pop out and scare me? Sometimes it's at work and it's a little bit more serious. It's not just somebody pranking you, but your coworkers aren't getting their work done on time. You're, you're having your trust broken because you feel like you can't rely on people to do their job. But then you start to actually see this take place in far more hurtful ways, right? Like we talk about the Thanksgiving holiday and being back around family. Some people are blessed with a family that is like super tight-knit and really connected, but Many people, I'm sure some of you in this room, know what it's like to be betrayed deeply by the people that you love the most. Trust is hard. And I want to just ask you a quick question. How is your trust in God? Not just other people. How is your trust in God? Because I would look at recent polls that say... 81% of Americans believe in God. Or to make it more specific, 63% of Americans identify as Christian. 
would say that they believe in Jesus. And though I don't think people are lying when they're self-reporting, I think one of the issues with the word believe is there's a gross misunderstanding here. So what if I asked the question, not just do you believe in God or do you believe in Jesus, but what if I said, do you trust in Jesus? How might that change those statistics? And as we in this room sit under the weight of that question, do you trust in Jesus? I'm not just talking intellectually, but like as you look at your thought life, as you look at your week, as you look at the last maybe semester or year, let me ask you a question. Do you trust in Jesus? And today, as we open up to Genesis, I hope we'll be able to leave here with a more clear answer to that question. We're going we're gonna to actually look at what does it look like to trust in Jesus? And these are good questions for us to actually like view our life through. So what does it look like to trust in God? Open up your Bibles with me to Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is where we're going to be. We have a lot of ground to cover. Now, the goal is to cover the entire book of Genesis in 15 weeks. And if you're good at math, you're figuring out we can't keep going at the pace that we've been at, right? We've got to pick it up a little bit. So today, Genesis 12 through 17. Yeah, six chapters. And here's, here's just a word of encouragement to you. I'm not going to preach for three hours, all right? Same sermon length. All of you can say amen. Love it. Uh, but here's what I want you to do this week. Starting tomorrow, read a chapter a day. Start tomorrow with Genesis 12, and by Saturday next weekend, read Genesis 17. I don't want you guys to just take my word for what we're going to look at today, because we're going to have to fly through it. I want you to read it for yourself. Sound good? Say yep. Love it. Okay. Genesis 12. Now, the original audience, you're, you're beginning to understand Israel is in the wilderness, right? They've been set free from captivity in Egypt. They've been led miraculously out of Egypt. They've been given the promise of the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, like so much blessing is waiting there for them. But now they're in the midst of a 40-year wilderness journey. Do you think Israel knows what it's like to struggle with trust? I think they do, right? 40 years waiting for this promise And so as Moses actually begins to recount the story of Abraham, we're going to see three lessons for what it looks like to trust in God. And this is not just for Israel. This is for us. And so up until Genesis 12, you've seen God create. Everything's good. Humanity rebels. You actually see God, you know, give promises. And he chooses a man by the name of Noah to build an ark, cleanses the earth. And you think, great, everything's off to a good start. Wrong, right? Even by last week, as Richard talked through the Tower of Babel, you see the pride of humanity still just reigning, reigning on this earth. And then the question is, what is God going to do to redeem and rescue his people? And Genesis 12 is a hinge chapter to the rest of the entire book of Genesis. It's really a shift in the plot line as we begin to look at the life and family of Abraham. And so what we need to look at today as we set the stage for Abraham 
is we need to understand this is important not just for Israel. This is important for us, right? We have so many lessons to learn. I just want to talk through three. So what can we learn about trusting God? We're going to start in Genesis 12, and I'm going to read the first nine verses. So it should be on the screen. I'll read it for us. Spirit of the Lord says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, excuse me, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan... Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called Upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The first lesson we learn and what it looks like to trust in God is that trusting in God looks like active obedience. Active obedience. You see, in the first several verses, God delivers this wonderful promise to Abram. Right? He's like, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. In fact, through you, all the people of the earth are going to be blessed. It's an amazing promise, but do you see what happens on both sides of the blessing? I mean, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go. And then what did Abram do in verse 4? It says, Abram went. Abram went. So God told Abram to go, and Abram said, you bet. Right? Leave what's what you know behind, leave your land, leave your family, leave what's comfortable, and go. And what we know to be true because of Hebrews eleven eight, that'll be on the screen, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's profound, right? That God would just tell Abraham, go, leave your land. Leave your family, leave what's comfortable, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And Abram's like, you're God, I'm not, I'm going to go. In faith, he responds. And he doesn't just begrudgingly respond. We see him go, and he obeys in a worshipful manner, right? He's building these altars to praise God in his obedience. And so if you're Israel looking at this text, the question is, Are you going to obey the word of the Lord? Like as Moses hears from God and delivers the commands of the Lord to you, are you going to obey? Are you going to follow God wherever he leads you? 
And they knew what it was like to have to follow God, right? You talk about a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, that God was so evident to them leading them, but they didn't always know where exactly he was leading them. Israel, are you going to obey? Are you going to follow? In Veritas, like to us, are we going to obey God? Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard, when we can't see the full picture, are we going to be obedient? I think through the same word, go, right? Matthew 28, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And what does he tell his disciples? Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What if God told you to go? Would you? That's a hard command, right? Let alone thinking about some of these other commands we come across in the New Testament, right? Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Forgive each other just as God has forgiven you in Christ. Do all things without grumbling. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Rejoice always. Pray continuously and give thanks in all circumstances. These are commands that are given to us. They're not suggestions, but God's saying, here's what I'm commanding of you. And so Veritas, what's a hard command that you're having a hard time obeying? Maybe it was one that I just listed. Maybe it's another one that you already know God is telling you to do something or to not do something, and you're struggling with it. I would love to challenge us this week as a people of God to stop looking at our sin and saying, you know, oh, I slipped up again or I struggled or I made a mistake. And let's start using more realistic language as we look at our lives, right? If Abram's faith shows his trust in God, his obedience is showing that he trusts God. Here's what disobedience is. It's showing that we don't trust in God, right? So if I, in my disobedience, am not trusting God, the question is, who am I trusting in or what am I trusting in? And oftentimes it's ourselves, right? We trust in ourselves or we trust in the things of this world to deliver what they were never meant to give. And that's distrusting. It's not only disobedient, it's showing that you do not trust God to be good on his word. Now, as we look at the rest of these chapters, you're going to see that Abram wasn't always the best at trusting God, right? But as we look at the first nine verses, a great example of what it looks like to, to hear the voice of the Lord and to respond in faith. But Again, as we keep reading, we see that Abram was not always a good example. He was actually a bad example at this second lesson we need to learn, which is this. Trusting in God looks like patient faith. Trusting in God looks like patient faith. Do you know what the greatest promise was to Abram in Genesis 12? It was the promise of offspring, that he would have a child. Because as you look back at Genesis 3, 
and you look at the fall of humanity, one thing that God said to the serpent is really important. He said that from the offspring of woman will come the serpent crusher, the Messiah, right? So this requires the seed of Eve to continue on. And God is telling Abram, that's going to happen. That's going to happen for you. But if you look back at Genesis 11, you get these two verses towards the end of the chapter. It says, Abram and Nahor took wives. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's a problem, right? That she's barren. She cannot have children. And God is coming to Abram and he's saying, hey, your offspring are going to inherit the land. What God is saying to Abram in Genesis 12 is, my plan is bigger than your problem. And so you keep reading. You get to Genesis 15. Keep in mind, in Genesis 12, Abram is how old? 75. And within a few short chapters, with one flip of a page, you get to Genesis 15. And here's what we read. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. And he said, Look towards the heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, 10 years have passed. 10 years where God has said, I'm going to give you an offspring. And you can't blame Abram, can you? 10 years later, and he's like, hey, God, I'm waiting. Where's the offspring? I still don't have a kid. Maybe it's just going to be through Lot, you know? Maybe it's just going to be through my nephew. And God's like, no, 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 no you will have a son. And then you flip the page, maybe with a flip of a page, you hit Genesis 17, and you read this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. 
and I will be their God. You catching that? Between Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, what's going to end up being 25 years between the promise given to Abram and his offspring from Sarah being born. 25 years. And the problem is, Abram actually was not that patient. I mean, more patient than most of us, right? Waiting 20-some years. But here's what Abram did, actually, in, in Genesis 16. He got tired of waiting on God. He got tired of waiting on this promise. And so he decided to take matters into his own hands. And he said, you know, my wife is barren. She can't give me a kid. So he ends up sleeping with an Egyptian servant by the name of Hagar. And he has a child by the name of Ishmael. But we'll actually end up seeing, as you read farther on in your Bible, this is an example of not trusting God trying to work and trying to earn and trying to take matters into your own hands is shameful disobedience. And this is a word of warning to Israel and to us. Like, God is not going to work on your timing. And I'm not saying that to try and crush you, but God is going to work on his timing. And here's exactly why. Because he is going to be the one that receives the glory. When the promise is fulfilled, that God is going to fulfill his promise and his timing so that he gets the glory. And if you're anything like me, that's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow, right? We want God to be our vending machine. We go to him and we say, this is what I want and I want it now. Before, you know, give me what's going to drop down. I want blessing. But if he gave it to us on our timing, who would we boast in? Ourselves, right? I pushed the right buttons, I did the right thing, and therefore God was my vending machine and gave me exactly what I earned. That's not how he works. And I want to say, we live in a world and in a society that is addicted to urgent. We are addicted to urgent, right? News hits, and what's happening? Your phone is buzzing. Maybe it's Apple News or Twitter. You can find the news at your fingertips instantaneously. Or if you're like me, you're like, man, I'm sick of waiting for a conventional oven, so I'm going to buy an air fryer so my food cooks faster. It's like we can't even wait in the kitchen. Or you order something off Amazon, and you, you you pay $60 a year for Amazon Prime, and your delivery comes in three days instead of two, and you're like, I thought I had Amazon Prime, right? Like, two-day delivery, come on! These These are good things, okay? I love Amazon Prime. I love my air fryer, right? But I just want to warn you, Veritas, this type of society is dangerous to our faith, If we let that begin to bleed into our faith walk, we are actually in great danger. Because the life of a Christian actually requires an appetite for delayed gratification. If you want to live a life of faith, you need to grow your appetite for delayed gratification. Instant gratification will not cut it. You think about this example of, you've probably heard it before, 
maybe your high school math teacher, middle school math teacher dropped it on you. Okay, 30 days. Would you rather have $10,000 a day or a penny doubled? Most of us in this room, if you're old enough to like do math and figure out how this works out, you're going to choose a penny doubled. But here's what's going to happen after week one if you choose the penny doubled. How much money do you have? 64 cents. And your buddy that, you know, thought he chose right, he has $70,000. You're like, man, I guess I chose wrong. One week in, he's buying a, you know, Tesla, and you can't even buy a Snickers bar. You're like, what the heck? But here's what happens. By day 30, your friend who chose $10,000 a day, how much money do they have? 300 grand. Still pretty good. But if you choose the penny double, do you know what you end up with? 5.3 million. 5.3 million. Now, if you're like Abram, you could get really frustrated by week one and you could quit. You could say, I changed my answer. I want to go back to, to $10,000 a day. And you're going to miss out on delayed gratification. So following our Father in heaven, Veritas, actually requires an eternal perspective. And I want to ask you, how's that going? How is your eternal perspective going? Because Israel here, as they look at this text, they're in the middle of waiting. They're looking forward to the promised land. And we don't know how much more wandering they have left, but they have the promise out in front of them. And I just got to say, we're not much different from them. We have so many great promises out in front of us. Think of this. Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nor will the elections this week, right? Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How about this? Jesus is coming back to make all things new. How about this? Heaven belongs to those who have placed their faith in Jesus, where he will wipe away every tear from your eye and sickness and death will be no more. How are those realities shaping our life? How are those realities helping us wait in the midst of promise that is far off? Think of one man in my life who exhibited this very well. If you spend any amount of time around me, you're probably going to hear me talk about Chuck Howell, my dad. A man who served in Vietnam, ended up incarcerated after he was out of the military for drug and alcohol addiction. But this man encounters Jesus and still has to deal with many of the consequences of his sin. He was sick almost my entire life. COPD, his blood oxygen levels at like 30%. He has a heart attack. He has cancer. And here's what my dad did, okay? He still sought treatment. He wasn't trying to just be like, okay, let's just sit back and see what happens. He still sought treatment, but as we prayed for my dad to be healed, he never got to the point where he was like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to abandon God. God isn't answering this promise of healing for me, so I'm just going to, you know, complain, grumble, go my own way. No, my dad was patient. And he believed that God would heal him. 
whether it was in this life or the one to come. And he waited patiently for the healing of the Lord. And here's what happened. In March of 2016, he went home. He went to be with the Lord. And was he healed? Absolutely. Didn't happen on this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean that my dad wasn't healed. But it actually impacted his waiting. He was worshipful in his waiting. And it actually brings us to our last point and what it looks like to trust God. Okay, trusting in God looks like relying on his unfailing faithfulness alone. Trusting in God looks like relying on his unfailing faithfulness alone. And as you read Genesis 12 through 17 this week, you are going to see this so clearly. The important word in that last phrase is alone. Trusting in God is not looking at him and saying, hey, you hold up your end of the deal, and I'm going to hold up my end of the deal, and we're going to see how this works. Because as you start looking through these six chapters, you're going to find out if your hope is rely on God plus rely on your own faithfulness, here's what you're going to end up with. No hope. You're going to be without hope because your faithfulness will not do. I'm going to fly through some of what happens here in these chapters, okay? Genesis 12, God chooses Abram. Why? We don't know. Abraham was not a special man, but he was a man that would obey God. But God chooses him. And what does Abram do? Well, first he goes, he's obedient. But then as soon as famine hits the land, what does he do? He actually rejects God. He takes matters into his own hand. He goes into Egypt to try and control the situation. And not only does he leave where God is calling him to go, here's what he does. He lies about his wife being his wife. He says, tell people you're my sister. And here's what God does for that. He actually puts plagues on Pharaoh. He makes Pharaoh come to this realization that Sarai is actually Abram's wife. And so God steps in between the disobedience and says, Abram, take your wife back. Okay? You get to the next chapter, you have Abram's nephew, Lot. And their servants are disagreeing. And so they, they set out to say, let's go two different ways. And here's what Lot does. He looks at the land that is most appealing to the eye. Pretty similar to Genesis 3, right? He goes what's appealing for the eye, but what's most appealing to the eye is the land of Sodom. Super fertile land, but what do you know about the people? They're wicked. So Lot ends up in Sodom amongst these wicked people, and he's actually captured. And what does God do? In light of Lot's disobedience and lack of faith, here's what he does. He sends Abram to rescue him. And as you keep reading in Genesis, you'll find out Lot still was not a super faithful guy. But God in his faithfulness preserves Lot when he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. He preserves Lot's line because God is faithful to his promise. Then you get to Genesis 15. I, I read those first few verses. It says that Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. He credited Abraham with righteousness. 
That doesn't mean Abram was actually righteous, right? If you look back at the last several chapters, but God looked at him in his active faith and said, now I declare you righteous. Because of faith, I now credit you as righteous. And I wish I had three hours to actually preach this because I'm going to read the rest of Genesis 15. This is important, okay? God credits Abraham with righteousness, and here's what he says next. In verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, And it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, don't let those names at the end distract you, okay? Here's what actually just happened. Abram goes on this, like, you know, scavenger hunt to get all these animals, brings them before God, cuts them in half, and God does what to Abram? He puts him in a deep sleep. And then what he performs is this oath. It's a covenant-keeping ceremony. And traditionally, in their day and age, here's what would happen— You would cut these animal pieces in half, and if this is a two-way covenant, both people that are committed to keeping a promise would walk through the middle of these animals. And it was really a self-cursing oath. As you walked through the animals, you were proclaiming to the other party, if I don't keep my end of this deal, I will become just like these animals. My word is good. If I walk through these, my word is good. Otherwise, I am as good as dead. Now, who walks through the animal pieces in Genesis 15? You might not actually catch it because using this language of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch is not as apparent to us, but this is a sign or a symbol of God's presence. God alone is the one who enters into this self-cursing oath while Abram is asleep. The results of this covenant actually have nothing to do with Abram's faithfulness and everything to do with God's faithfulness. And as you'll find out, as you keep reading, even in spite of Abram's complete rejection and taking of Hagar, when you get to Genesis 17, God seals this covenant. He gives the sign of circumcision to Abram and his offspring. 
And here's what he says. Sarah is going to have a son in one year. And we now know that son is Isaac. And from the line of Abraham and Isaac actually comes Jesus Christ. You see that the seed is actually preserved because God is good on his promise. 1900 years later, Jesus steps foot on the scene. He is the serpent crusher. He practices perfect obedience where Abram didn't. He practices obedient faith, right? Hebrews would say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was spilled. Why? So that we might become the people of God. Right? That's why I love Galatians 3. It says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Like, we are Abraham's offspring. And Jesus did this for us while we were still sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were the ones in the deep sleep when God has actually come and walked through the pieces for us. We must trust in his faithfulness alone. So this third point is not just a what of what it looks like to trust in God. It is the why. And so if you're in this room and you're saying, why should I trust in God? This is a very appealing answer for you. Because God is good on his promises. We know that most as we look back now, 2,000 years, at the person work of Christ. Who lived, died, and resurrected that we might become a new people. And so... As you begin to think through, what is, what is my takeaway from Genesis 12 through 17? I think there's several that we should leave with. But I think the most important, number one, is you, ha- you have to believe in the gospel. You have to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And if you're anything like me, it's one thing to say you believe it, and it's another thing to trust in the gospel. To actually believe this saying, which says, on your worst days, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Do you believe that? And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. Do you believe that? I want to plead with you to believe in the gospel. On your best days, on your worst days, to say, man, I need the faithfulness of God. Not just now, but for eternity. And if you can actually understand that God has secured for you an eternity in heaven, here's what you can do. You can trust him with your future. Right? If you can trust him with eternity, you can trust him with your future, which means another potential application point is you need to live with patient faith. God has given you a promise that you have not yet seen come to fruition. The question is, are you worshiping in the waiting? Are you trusting God in the waiting, or are you trying to take control? Are you anxious about what's happening, or are you trusting in the promises of God? I think a good exercise for us this week to just stir up our faith in the waiting process is to begin recounting God's faithfulness to you. Like, think about the things you were worried about 10 years ago. Where are they today, right? Where were you 
15, 20 years ago, all the things you were worried about, how has God shown himself to be faithful? Just start to write those down. Stir up your faith as you begin to wait. And now, if you can trust God with your future, the question is, can you trust him in the present? Right? Like, what is one command that you're having a hard time obeying? And if you can say, man, Jesus is so faithful to die for me while I was still a sinner. He has been so faithful over the duration of my life. And he's telling me to do this hard thing that doesn't make sense. Can you take him at his word? And even if you don't understand, believe, Jesus, if you died for me, I believe that your commands are actually for my flourishing. One command that you need to take hold of this week and actually trust God and step into obedience in. And as I think about what it looks like to live this out, whether it's for Israel or for us, I've already alluded to this phrase of worship in the waiting. To worship in the waiting. That Veritas Urbana would become known as a people that are worshipful. Right? And you're in the midst of a broken world. Things are hard. Things are not getting better. But your outlook is not like the rest of the world around you that's complaining and is just so caught up in what's going to happen. You know how the story ends, Veritas. To worship in the waiting. And from there, that we would stand out, that we would look different than the world around us because we have hope. And then from there, as First Peter says, you know, that people would begin to ask for the reason for the hope that is within us, right? Why are you guys so optimistic? Why are you so hopeful? Well, let me tell you, his name is Jesus Christ. He is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is making all things new. And from there, that we would actually become the inheritance, right? We would become the offspring of Abraham that are meant to be a blessing to the world around us. That more and more people would become worshipers of Jesus based simply upon the fact that we are people that are worshiping in the waiting. Is that something you would want to see happen? Right? Your, your neighborhood, your workplace, the surrounding cities, rural Iowa. I know I would. But it's not up to our faithfulness, but his. And so I want to pray. I want to lean on the grace of God. And I want to just bring us into a a place where we can respond in worship. So pray with me. Father God, you are the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. When we are faithless, God, you remain faithful. Jesus, while we were still sinners, you stepped out of the comfort of heaven. You put on flesh. You lived with perfect obedience and patient faith for the joy set before you, namely the inheritance of your people. You endured the cross. You despised its shame. And now you're seated at the right hand of the Father. And God, I pray that that reality would bring us incredible hope. That Veritas Urbana would be a church that is known as a people that worship in the waiting. 
that we practice active obedience and at the same time are patient as we trust you with what's coming. And as we do so, God, we pray that more and more people would come to know you, the living and saving God, that we would be a blessing, not for the name of Veritas or Banna, but Jesus, for your name alone, that you would be glorified in and through our church. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.